Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm Brandy. And I'm Chris. And this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends, for this week's episode, The Lake Waco Murders, Part 2. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brandy. How are you doing? I am living the dream. How are you doing? Living the dream. I kind of am. This is, I. you know how much I love podcasting? I do. I am. I do. It never feels like work and a job if you love doing it, right? This is true. <laughs> very true. Just a very busy hobby. Very busy. <laughs> uh, Chris, we have a live show coming up this Saturday. We do. Super excited about that. Yep. July 30th, this Saturday at Farina's Winery in Grapevine. Babe, this show sold out pretty, pretty quick. Yeah, pretty quickly. I was surprised. So I hope our... Why are you surprised? We're good. We're fun. <laughs> it sold out real quick. It did sell out real quick. But um, that is... That's awesome, though. This is a local show. Our main first big local show. Yep. Finally, people that are... Finally. Uh, yeah, that know us around here can actually go and see us. So. Yes. Yes. So um, I hope our local friends got their tickets. So we will see everyone out there on Saturday. Tonight, we are sipping on Sweet Freedom from Edge of the Lake Vineyard. A nice, refreshing wine with this heat, for I sure. I would agree with that. Yes, very refreshing. <laughs> All right, babe. Are you ready to get into part two of the Lake Waco murders? Let's begin. All right, friends. Let's sip some wine and talk some crime. All right, babe. In part one, we discussed how Kenneth, Raylene, and Jill were found brutally murdered Kenneth had been propped up against a tree and posed, his sunglasses put back on him by the killers. Yes. This is a mocking gesture, I believe. Some sort of mocking, yeah, I mean, mocking or um, I don't know. What is the word I'm looking for? Well, I mean, mocking. They, ob they obviously had time to, after everything occurred, to do this stuff and kind of, uh, like you said, pose people. And, you know, yeah, that's kind of strange. So Raylene and Jill are found about 75 feet away from Kenneth. Their throat slashed. Both women had been sexually assaulted, but no semen found anywhere on the bodies or at the crime scene. Um, and between all three victims, there were a total of 48 stab wounds. It's a lot. That is a lot. It's a lot. And you have to think, you know, are we, we're going to talk about the other suspects today. So we're not going to, this is not a one person job nor did they believe that from the beginning. I would agree with that. Um, so we close part one by mentioning Munir Deeb. So Deeb owned the convenience store. By the way, please go listen to part one. Part two will not make any sense if you haven't listened to one. Uh, Deeb owned the convenience store directly across the street from the Methodist home, which we mentioned, where Kenneth and Jill had once been students. Gail Kelly is an employee at Deeb's store. We mentioned her in part one. She calls Sergeant Simmons and claims Deeb confessed, confessed to her that he was indeed involved in the murders. Police come to find out that Deeb not only has a life insurance policy on Gail Kelly, his employee, but supposedly he had policies on all of his employees. Now, Chris, this is strange. Very strange. So we talked about this last time, but I want to I want to kind of talk about because I used to be in insurance. Right. I I know a lot about partnership insurance life insurance and the reason you have that if you're a business owner and you have life insurance on someone else who you're in business with it's because if that person was to die there has to be money to compensate for the loss in the business that this person can no longer bring in well and i would think you have to have that other person agreeing to be a part of this life insurance policy right which is sign it or 
I don't know. I mean, now, well, clearly, nowadays they make you uh, do blood tests and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, so. Oh, yeah. Times have definitely changed in the insurance business. No doubt about that. It used to be really easy to take out life insurance policies on people, clearly, because he listed himself as his as her common law husband on these insurance policies, on, on this one insurance policy. Yeah. Now, I mean, would he list himself as for these other people? Right. I haven't found any documentation or anything that shows these other insurance policies. But I was, when in my research, I did find out that it was said he had other policies on other employees. But that is not a loss in his business. I mean, it is, but it isn't. This is a convenience store. This, is no, this isn't a partnership. That employee has no, they're not bringing money into the convenience store as Deeb is as the owner, right? This is a different type of business. If Deeb had a partner who owned this convenience store with him, it would be, it would make total sense that they would have life insurance policies on each other based on the based on the income of the business, right? Yes. Well, they didn't ask enough questions, clearly. So they let him take out this life insurance policy um, on her. So since we have told you about Deeb, let's introduce the other three people that are said to have been involved in this crime. The next person we'll discuss is David Spence. So David Spence, um, who's also known by the name Chili, this name comes up um, the first time by 17-year-old Lisa, Lisa Cater. We talked about her in part one. Uh, she's the one who brought Munir, Munir Deeb's name into the suspect pool from the beginning. And she mentions a man named Chili. So they asked Deeb about this guy. Is there a guy who hangs out at your convenience store with the name Chili? And it comes back with a real name of David Spence. Mm-hmm. David Spence worked next door to the convenience store. So he was kind of hanging around, right? He was in that area working. So people knew him, Deeb knew him. And so they find out Spence had just been arrested with his friend Gilbert Melendez for cutting a teenage boy on the leg and forcing him to perform perform oral sex on Melendez. Great dudes. So Chris, these are the kinds of people we're dealing with here. Okay, so now that they have a name and what seems to be a promising lead, this guy's arrested for sexual assault, um, Sergeant Simmons decides to go to the jail and talk to Spence. He told Simmons, just like I mentioned, he worked next door, spent a lot of time around. um, And this was the beginning of what I mentioned in part one was was Sergeant Simmons deciding to have a career change, to make this career change in order to solve this case. So he was so confident that he could get Spence to confess that he was ready to leave his job and get a job inside of the jail as a sheriff's deputy. So he leaves his job as a sergeant. He gets a job working at the jail working at the prison as a sheriff's deputy. Now, the book that um, was written about this case, Careless Whispers, it is all about Simmons taking this job to close in on Spence and have conversations with him. Basically, every day, he sat down with this guy every single day. He worked, I think, the night shift. So it was like midnight to 8 or 11 to 8 or something like that. So he would have these conversations with him um, late at night. But this this book, this entire book revolves around this guy leaving his job as a sergeant, becoming a sheriff's deputy in the jail, 
just to solve this case. But what role as a sheriff's deputy would he be like he's not on the investigative side? No, they basically let him investigate. So he had open reign to do this. He told, you know, his his counterparts that he was going to leave the force, get a job inside of the prison so he would have access to him, uh, talk to him, ask him questions. His whole his whole thing was eventually somebody's going to come to me about this guy. He's either going to say something to someone else in here. He's going to say something. Now, he had this longtime girlfriend, and he let him talk to this girl on the phone for much longer periods of time than I think a normal inmate is allowed to talk on their phone to the significant other. Uh, But nothing ever came out of those conversations. So... You know, the the other two suspects we're going to talk about in this case are the Melendez brothers. Um, I mentioned earlier that these two, you know, they knew Spence. They ran around with Spence. They went, I think one of the brothers went to high school with them. But it's clear Spence is the ringleader. um, Or is Munir Deeb the ringleader? So we, this is, these outcomes for both of these men are completely different. So I just mentioned Simmons being in the jail working that job. I'm trying to set the scene for everyone because this is really going to how these four individuals were then brought to trial and indicted. Um, And this is how it started. He he quits his job on the force. Basically, Chris, they let him investigate this inside. He had to take a job inside, but they knew he was still investigating this. They were allowing it because he was so convinced this guy had something to do with it, and he knew or he thought a confession was going to come sooner than later. And now it's time for a word from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Grits with a Side of Murder. Grits with a Side of Murder is a true crime podcast hosted by Tammy and her variety of co-hosts. Grits features a different guest each week, and they have no idea what criminal truth Tammy will reveal. Tammy and her co-hosts sip on adult beverages while she tells a true crime story. Now, Grits with a Side of Murder consists of some light banter about the criminals while still making a conscious effort to be respectful of victims and their families. When you tune in, you might hear Tommy, you might hear Jordan, Colin, or maybe Michelle. You just never know who or what you're going to get. You can hear new episodes each and every week. You will be sucked in by that cool intro music. So please, friends, check out Grits with a Side of Murder wherever you listen to your podcasts. Contains adult content and explicit material. Um, Soon after Simmons began his new job as a sheriff's deputy, and I mentioned he's working the graveyard shift, um, he and Spence began, you know, they start talking regularly. Um, He brings up the Lake Waco case. They're talking about just life. You know, he ends up telling Spence, like, you know what? You're a suspect. I know we're talking. I know you've confided in me. He actually doesn't. He actually tells them this pretty early on when these conversations began that and Spence was so happy that someone took the time to talk with him. He didn't even really care. He was a suspect. He just kept talking to him, this guy, um, all the time, just regular conversations. Okay, so now after he... 
So after he tells him, right, you're, you're a suspect, we're thinking you're involved, um, he's talking to the girlfriend, he doesn't disclose anything to the girlfriend. Um, I think Chris, to me, and the whole, you know, we always say, if somebody's going to confess on the inside, an inmate is going to come forward, right? Typically, if somebody confesses inside, it, that information sometimes gets shared with authorities thinking they might get a lighter sentence, thinking that if they come forward with this type of information, I mean, this is a big case, right? If they come forward with this information, then maybe their sentence will be um, reduced. But, and, and he was right. This happens. Kevin Mickle. Kevin Mickle is an inmate. He tells Deputy Simmons that Spence had bragged about killing the teenagers, Mickle gave Simmons some other details that corroborate uh, one that Kenneth had been bound with shoelaces and that Raylene had a bra tied around her leg. So he also reported that Spence had suggested that Gilbert Melendez, um, which was Spencer's co um, perpetrator in the case with the boy Mm -hmm. that they were both in prison for. Um, that he also was involved in the Lake Waco murders. Were the details of the crime scene, I'm assuming that was something in the newspaper? So I, from what I understand and read, the the bra tied around the leg and the shoelaces was not released. I'm just wondering, because, you know, sometimes people will brag about things to make them appear more menacing. Right. You know. Um. I mean, we know this now, right? We know we know all of these details now because these these people have gone, you know, they, they've been indicted. So they release information after all this is out. But this is something I don't believe at this point they, the public actually knew. Um, so now we have details of the crime coming from another inmate. But Chris, other inmates start coming forward with things that Spence had told them. Um, that he had been paid to kill the teens, but had killed the wrong ones. Uh, a foreigner named Lucky had paid him to kill the three because a girl had basically upset him or shamed him in some aspect. But here's the thing. Lucky, remember, that's Munir Deeb's nickname. Mm-hmm. So this is like coming full circle. You know, how are they? How how do they know this name? Right. How are they the foreigner and someone named Lucky? being paid to kill the teens, but to kill the wrong ones, which we talked about in in the first part a little bit, the theory of the two of the girls looking very much alike. Um, that would be Jill and Gail Kelly. And so you have these, he's now starting to get some information, right? Information's now starting to flow to him. So he decides he's going to take this to the DA, and this was a new DA at this time, and his name is Vic Fiesel. So he brings all of this information, Simmons does, to the DA, and he's like, I think there's enough. I think there's enough here, and here's the theory. So this is the theory that Simmons came up with that he shared with the DA which led to the indictment of Deeb, Spence, and the Melendez brothers in 1983. So Simmons believed that Deeb hired Spence. Simmons believed that Deeb hired Spence to kill, to kill Gail Kelly for the insurance money. He believed that she was the actual target, but in a case of mistaken identity, Spence killed Jill Montgomery instead. The two girls looked so much alike. He thinks they killed Jill, thinking it was Gail, and then killed Raylene and Kenneth 
because they were there and would be able to identify them if left alive. Sounds plausible. I just, I mean, I don't know the, the whole looking exactly alike, though. I mean, somebody would have to know these kids were out there at, the, at that time. And, you know. Right. Yeah. Let's let's kind of circle back because I feel like we're kind of talking about out of con. I mean, not out of context, but let's think about Let's remember where they were. Right. They went to Cohen Park where there are lots of teenagers around cars parked. People are drinking having fun. Nobody hears any screaming. Nobody sees any altercations happening. Um, so they do believe they met their perpetrators at Cohen Park. Mm-hmm. Somehow they leave with them. They either meet them somewhere, but remember Raylene's car is left at Cohen Park. Okay. That's where they find her car. So they didn't get in her car and drive, which is how they got to Cohen Park was by her vehicle. So they're in another vehicle. We looked at the distance between this. This is nighttime. There was no signs of a boat. No one saw anyone getting on a boat. Um, so they do believe they got in a car or left with someone and then went on the other side of the lake, which makes, which seems to make the most sense here. Um, and then once on that other side of the lake, um, they were found in Spiegelville Park, which is directly across from Cohen Park. Um, but there were no tire tracks that were seen. There was no blood that seemed to be. Um, and remember, there wasn't that much blood found on the scene. I mean, they were gory. You know, this is a very gory crime. But this is why police believe the crime happened somewhere else. Yeah, that's kind of what I think, too, just based on the crime scene itself. And then brought them there, realized they had enough time to place them there, to prop up Kenneth. I mean, they're laughing at this, right? They're putting the sunglasses back on him. And I guess that's what I was meaning about, like, mocking. I see them joking, right? I'm trying to picture this. You know, laughing, posing him, putting his sunglasses on. Very carefree like. So that tells me they're very familiar with the area. They're not in a hurry to get out of there. They don't feel like they're going to be seen. And the real question is why? Why were these people so comfortable in this area with with it being, a, 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 I don't know, if I, was this on a Saturday but it was a weekend, right? Mm-hmm. They, she had gone to get her paycheck. I think it was a Saturday. But you have to see, and I keep going back to that. They're taking their time, right? I feel like there were torture, right? We know there were torture marks on the girls and on Kenneth, poked marks. So they know that they were tortured. And you're and you're in a park. So I feel like the police got this right, I do feel like they were killed somewhere else and then brought out there. But the question I have always had in this case is who would choose this, this particular area? Why would they choose this particular area? And why were they comfortable enough to just not dump and drive off? And that is a big question I have. Well, maybe it was less populated than the other side. I mean, that's well. Yeah. It was late. I don't know what time the park I mean, closed Waco's back still then. Kind right, of the country back. I mean, it's still right. the country right now. You know, I mean, it's you know, lots of places that kids go and hang out. I mean, there's not many people. I mean, around. So, I mean, it's I don't know. That doesn't seem that strange. I mean, that they took them there just because it is kind of even though it's at the lake, it's late at night. I'm assuming, and you know, not a lot of activity. 
Right. And the fishermen, right, were looking for a place to fish. So, you know, we know they were found by trees and brush and a, a very wooded type, you know, area. It wasn't just totally in the open. Um, so Spence was the first of the four defendants to stand trial. He was already serving a 99-year sentence in the unrelated aggravated sexual assault case we mentioned. The DA was so convinced by his guilt they chose to try him a second time in the Brazos County. So he's tried twice, death penalty given to him twice in both trials. They were afraid one or even one sentence would be overturned. Like the, they did not want this guy out of prison. Mm-hmm. Now, Deep's trial was moved to Johnson County, where he also received the death penalty. However, his conviction was reversed and he was found not guilty on retrial in Tarrant County in 1993. The DA was stunned. The people who had, you know, tried this case were stunned. They could not believe um, that this guy was let out of prison. They were for sure that he had gotten away with murder. David Wayne Spence appealed his convictions, um, which as same with Deeb, and Deeb gets released. Uh, David, Wentz, David Wayne Spence was not so lucky, and in April of 1997, Chris, he was executed for his role in the killings. As Spence was strapped to the gurney in the execution chamber, he turned to the victim's families in attendance and said that they were being victimized once again because he was not guilty and the real killer was still free. The Melendez brothers pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and both died in prison, serving life terms. Gilbert Melendez testified at Deeb's trial, and this happened in Cleburne, Texas, while Anthony Melendez testified at Spence's second trial, which took place in Bryan, Texas. Both brothers later recanted their confessions. Hmm. Chris, they all went to their deaths proclaiming their innocence. Uh, Deeb died six years after getting out. Um, he died from cancer. And he spent 10 years, I guess, in prison. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. Um, but they all went to their deaths proclaiming that they had absolutely nothing to do with this crime. So, Chris, I mentioned in part one, this case reminds me a lot of the yogurt shop murders. Mm-hmm. Um, You have four defendants, you have a few confessions, but there are no confession ever directly from Spence. So basically, Spence was was tried on the word of the inmates, Mm -hmm. right? That's how this got started. And when they were going through the courts with Spence's attorneys, you know, they said, These people were probably promised things. I mean, you know, these are inmates. Now, all of a sudden, they're coming forward and they're telling him all of these things. So they just felt that um, the basis of his conviction was on the word of other inmates without real, actual, tangible evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, So I mentioned they all... Up to their very last days, they all basically claimed their innocence. And the Melendez brothers and Deeb all stated um, when they were recanting and saying, listen, uh, you know, 
we didn't confess. Like we, we did, but we really didn't do it. And they said the reason they did was because it was the constant police interrogations, not giving up until they got the answers they wanted. And they wanted to pin this on someone. You know, we saw this in the yogurt shop murders. I mean, these four boys, um, you know, you have you have confessions, but then the evidence doesn't back up the confession. There's actually no evidence tying the the crime with with the people. And now I would say I'll say this case is a lot closer to that. You have acquaintances between the the so perpetrators and the victims, right? They they worked and lived next to each other. So there was a relationship there. We didn't see that in the yogurt shop murders. These boys did not know these girls. Um and, and so there was no relation, but here it's it's makes a little sense, right? It makes it makes sense that they could be responsible for this case. But the question is, Chris, did the courts get this one right? Did they get it right? Was an innocent man executed? You know, he how, never. How was his How was he over his sentence overturned? Deeb, yeah. how was his overturned? Basically, just from well, one of the Melinda's brothers testified at his trial. He recanted. Um, well, one he passed a polygraph after three hours. That was the first thing. His family wanted a polygraph, so that was that was what made Simmons so upset at first because he thought for sure he was going to fail that. He said, "There's there's absolutely no way this guy's going to pass it." He ends it's up not even admissible though. No, it's not admissible. But that was kind of how this this thing got started with Deep. He first passes that. Now they have to basically leave him alone for a little bit, right? They have to kind of leave him alone and go after once they learn of Spence's name. Um, but it, it it's it was overturned um, basically because there just was lack of evidence. There just was no evidence tying him to the crime. I mean, just because you know someone. It doesn't seem that there's really a lot of evidence to tie any of these people. Right. You know, so, I mean, even when you look at it. You know, you have a man in, in prison for 99 years for doing a terrible crime. This guy was a real piece of work. I mean, he had a, a very long, extensive criminal history, and he wasn't that old. Um, you know, is it... I, now I have not read the book. I haven't read the book yet. I am going to read the book because I would like to kind of dive in to see what this guy really found out from these inmates and like what was said. You know, do you take the fact that there were parts of the evidence that was not available to the public that these folks came forward and mentioned that? But when you're sitting there talking about something you did, do you just happen to mention shoelaces? you know, in a bra tied. I don't know. I find it. I do. I will say this. I find it strange. A lot of inmates come forward that that's that Spence is telling all of these inmates everything, what he's done, but then never confesses or, or has any strange conversations with the girlfriend. And he never, ever admits it to Simmons who he speaks to every single day about this crime. Yeah, it's a very strange one. So he just saying to everyone else and just not knowing or thinking that the inmates would go and tell this guy who he knows is in there to basically get a confession out of him. And that's why he's there. That's why he takes this job. I mean, this guy finds us out. I mean, well, no, he knows. He's in prison initially for 
right. cutting a, a young boy. He's probably not looked upon too favorably among, among the inmates. So him making himself out to be a murderer could be, he's already serving that term. That's so right. If he's going to serve that term, why not look like he's nobody messes with him? I right. Mean, this guy's probably not very popular. No. So, no. Um, you know, um, people probably do that all the time. There was a recent, um, I think there's some video of the the DA, who was the DA at the time. You know, we're talking like this year this was made, talking about this case. Um, and half of them believe they're innocent and half of them believe they're guilty. That's the feeling I get when I read this stuff and research it. The attorneys who were who were representing these boys were adamant that they were wrongly convicted and did everything they possibly could to get them off. And then you have the DA and Simmons who wholeheartedly believed in their guilt and want to make sure that they, you know, served, served their time for this. Um, but you never know. This guy's he's a long time police well, officer, all, yeah. investigator. He And he passed pay. away. But he, I'm just saying, mm-hmm. like, you know, sometimes they have that gut feeling too. So That's right. Um, he passed away, so he's, and then all four defendants have, you know, have passed away. So this case is, is Some just, not willingly. Yeah, some not willingly, you know? So we'll never know. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe if somebody knows something or some family member, I mean, you never know what's going to come out. We see so many things 30, 40, 50 years later that, you know that they've solved something or something new has come up. Um, There were hairs that um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in part one, but there were hairs that were found on the bodies, like some of the hairs, but they could never pinpoint who they actually belong to. I mean, you know, we're talking, this isn't back when DNA was um, really a a thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So they, but they, they did find the hairs. And again, they never say, I wish I could find some information on the sexual assaults, whether they felt like they had been washed or cleaned or um, maybe like you said, sexually assaulted with an instrument and not an actual person. Um, So I don't know. There's a lot of questions I have in this case, a lot of questions. um, But, but as far as Texas goes, as far as the justice system goes, you know, they put a man to death for this crime so I, this is case closed, you mm-hmm. know, in the eyes of, in the eyes of Texas. Um, but still lots of, um, and usually when they have a conviction, they're really reluctant to go try to find other people because that yeah. case closed. That's off the docket. That's a win. Yeah. All right. Well, that concludes part two of the Lake Waco murders. If you want to see pictures of this case, you can find them on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Just search Texas wine and true crime. All right, so Sweet Freedom is just one of the great wines from our friends at Edge of the Lake Vineyard. Uh, Please go visit our friends in Valley View, Texas. We had one of their great wines last week, Chris, in part one. So we just thought we'd, um, you know, keep with the rhythm and and do a second wine by our friends um, at Edge of the Lake. So stop by, order online, but you have got to try their wine. Oh, that rhymed. It is come run. Hmm. All right. We'll go po, see our po friends. And you didn't know it. <laughs> Poe and I didn't know it. Until next time, friends. Stay safe. Have fun. And cheers to next time. Cheers, everyone.